The first seminar of this term is by Sarah Burke, who's a research fellow at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University in Canberra. Sarah is no stranger to UBBO. She studied for the MPhil in Medical Anthropology at Oxford. She went on to the DPhil, which she completed successfully in 2020. Congratulations, Sarah. Sarah works with the MICAWI, National Study of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Wellbeing, which is a national epidemiological study which explores social and cultural determinants of health for the Indigenous people of Australia. Sarah is an Indigenous Australian herself, born and raised in Canberra in Australia, and she's descended from the Gidshia people of Western Australia and Gamilaroi people on the border of Queensland and New South Wales. So her talk today is on the cultural determinants of health as a research framework, a case study from Indigenous Australia. Sarah, welcome back to UBBO. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm very happy to be presenting today. All right. I hope everybody can see that. So Yamamalia, Sarah Burke, Yaya. Hello, friends. I'm Sarah Burke. That was Gamilaroi language, the language of my father's family. Uh, Stanley's already given an excellent introduction, so I'll just go straight into my presentation. I just wanted to provide a little context about who Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are, for those of you who may not be familiar with the region. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, who are the Indigenous peoples of Australia, make up around 3% of the total population. Within these categories, there is a huge amount of cultural diversity. Indigenous cultures have been maintained in Australia for at least 65,000 years. Prior to British colonisation, around 1788, there were over 500 groups which varied in cultural beliefs and practices, and at least 250 distinct Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages spoken. Now, there are reported to be around 150 groups, with 123 language varieties currently in use or being revitalised or revived. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have persevered in preserving and adapting traditional forms of culture alongside creating new forms of expression, demonstrating their strength and resilience in the face of ongoing colonial practices and mindsets in Australia. So my presentation today is based on one of the key findings from my DPhil thesis called Making Cultures Count, Transforming Indigenous Health Data in Australia. My thesis focused on the development of the largest epidemiological survey of Indigenous Australian health and well-being to date, called the Mayakawai National Study of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Wellbeing. I will refer to this study as Mayakawai or MK for short in this presentation. Mayakawai means to follow people over time in the Nyampa language, which is the language of the study's lead researcher, Raymond Lovett. The study was launched in 2018 and is led, operated and owned by Indigenous Australians. It has now collected data from over 10,000 participants and will be administered every three years to generate longitudinal data. My field work took place in 2017 and 2018 while the baseline survey was still being developed and my ethnography focused on how the study's researchers dealt with the concept of culture within this epidemiological framework. Culture is central to an Indigenous lived experience or life world and this study is the first national study of Indigenous population health in Australia to take into account. One of the key findings of my thesis was that cultural determinants of health was a research framework strategically mobilised by Maya Kauai through their epidemiological survey. You can see that this is clearly represented in some of the studies advertising on the right-hand side of the slide. During my DPhil, I had not come across any articles which discussed cultural determinants of health as a research framework, and so I decided to develop such a paper drawing on my DPhil work in combination with an international scoping literature review. This presentation will cover the highlights of this paper that I'm currently working on, 
And at the end, I would very much like to hear your thoughts on my research and would welcome any suggestions you may have for the paper. In this presentation, I will discuss what the concept of cultural determinants of health entails and how this differs from social determinants of health, how cultural determinants draws on a strengths-based research approach, how the Mayakawai study defined cultural determinants of health for Indigenous Australians, and how they use this to develop cultural indicators for their survey. I will also provide a summary of this international scoping literature review I have started to understand how cultural determinants is conceptualised in different contexts. And then I will give some final thoughts on how acknowledging cultural determinants of health can help decolonize health narratives. The concept of social determinants, oh sorry, the concept of is a reflection of the widespread acceptance of social determinants in the public health sphere and the political power that epidemiological frameworks of health are able to generate. Social determinants of health has become an established research framework in population and public health following the work of British epidemiologist Michael Marbot and his colleagues who studied health inequalities in the UK and globally. As I'm sure many of you already know, the term social determinants of health is used to describe non-medical factors that influence health outcomes, things like employment, education, housing and access to adequate healthcare, among many others. These conditions are of course shaped by upstream social, political and economic forces. Social determinants of health is often used in epidemiological studies to measure different types of risk to population health and thus health inequalities and inequities. The social determinants framework has thus been used to advocate for changes in professional health practice and for the development of national policy strategies to reduce health inequity. However, there is conceptual ambiguity around the term social determinants and how it is used in academic health and policy settings, leading to confusion over whether it relates to the determinants of health or the determinants of inequalities in health, or both. Further, it has been argued that social determinants are inadequate for explaining the influence of cultural factors which should be considered determinants of health in their own right. The acknowledgement of the importance of culture for well-being, particularly for Indigenous peoples, has given rise to the concept of cultural determinants of health. Unlike social determinants, which tend to reinforce a deficit discourse through the comparison of one social group to another and their experience of relative advantage or disadvantage, cultural determinants seeks to represent the inherent strengths of cultural knowledges and practices, protecting and promoting health within specific groups. Cultural determinants of health draws on what has come to be known as a strengths-based approach, which focuses on individual and community assets, including resilience, empowerment, and holistic approaches to wellness and well-being, to name a few. This is a critical distinction to make when looking at the health and well-being of Indigenous peoples, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The social and political narrative about Indigenous health in Australia has always been dominated by the voices of white Australian medical practitioners, public health researchers and politicians. Fueled by the collection of quantitative data which constantly compares Indigenous Australians with the non-Indigenous population at its norms, Indigenous individuals and communities have become characterised on a national scale different, disparate, disadvantaged, dysfunctional and deprived. This discourse has been facilitated by ongoing colonial power structures in Australia, which work to systematically undermine Indigenous cultures and sovereignty. The events of colonisation have led to an intergenerational trauma as a result of the loss and discrimination Indigenous peoples have survived. This trauma has manifested as a, as a statistical gap between the health, education, economic and social outcomes of Indigenous Australians versus non-Indigenous Australians, and is reinforced by the deficit discourse, which serves to blame Indigenous communities for their own disease burden. 
I would now like to tempt fate by showing a video, which is about four minutes long, which was developed by the Healing Foundation in 2018, which explains intergenerational trauma from an indigenous perspective and will provide further context for the rest of this presentation. This was when culture and our law first started to thrive. We knew who we were and where we belonged. We took care of each other, our land and our waters. We ate food that made us healthy, lived on country and abided by our laws and song lines. Our families, our children were happy with strong minds and hearts because they were where they belonged. Then, everything bunched. Colonization came, bringing wars, disease, famine, violence, and the destruction and violation of our cultural laws, sacred sites, families, and communities. We were denied our knowledge, language, ceremonies, and identity. The very things that tell us we are, we belong and our connections with the other and the land grew weak. And their identities stripped away. They were told that Aboriginal people were bad. Worse still, they were told that their parents and grandparents did not want them. For years this happened, and those children became known as the Stolen Generations. Our children were denied love and experienced physical, emotional and sexual abuse. This left very deep, very complex, and very real wounds, leaving scars that are still being felt personally, socially, spiritually, and collectively. In the time when our story started, we were able to parent in the cultural way that has seen our families survive and thrive for generations. Our people were strong. But since the trauma of colonization and the stolen generations, we have not been able to heal in the same way. And we have unknowingly passed this trauma on to our children through sharing our sad stories and having them witness and experience our pain. This is known as intergenerational trauma. And we see symptoms today in broken relationships, disconnected families, violence, suicide, and drug and alcohol abuse. But this is not where our story ends. We still have strong minds and hearts, and we still know who we were and where we belong by creating safe and strong communities together, supporting our families to be free from pain, returning to our culture and building a strength of identity. We can stop the cycle of trauma and bring about positive intergenerational change so that we can continue to thrive for the next 60,000 years. There are simple things that we can all do to help heal our trauma. Visit healingfoundation.org.au to find out more. That video is a good example of how conversations about Indigenous wellbeing are now being reoriented in space approach by emphasising the strong minds and hearts of Indigenous people and the desire to return to our culture and build strength of identity to heal intergenerational trauma. Strengths-based research and policy agendas emerged in the mid-2000s following increasing recognition of the deficit discourse and its impact in Australia. 
This occurred in tandem with the movement towards indigenous status sovereignty and governance in the wake of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples adopted in 2007. As the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples phrased it, the concept of data sovereignty is linked with Indigenous peoples' right to maintain, control, protect, and develop their cultural heritage, traditional knowledge, and traditional cultural expressions, as well as their right to maintain, control, protect, and develop their intellectual property over these. The strong relationship which has been established between research and rights-based activism seeking Indigenous control over Indigenous outcomes has generated an increase in studies focusing on culture as central to Indigenous experiences of health and well-being. In the Indigenous health narrative, culture has thus become operationalised through the concept of cultural determinants of health. Now, what is considered to be culture and what aspects of determinants of health has become very well defined in the Indigenous Australian health research context in the last few years. A comprehensive international literature review about the cultural determinants of Indigenous health was published by affiliates of the Mai Kauai study in partnership with the Lowish Institute in 2019. This review, called Defining the Indefinable, aimed to challenge the idea that culture is intangible and reviewed over 108, sorry, 280 articles published between 1990 and 2017, which discussed Indigenous people's cultures and how various elements of culture related to health and well-being. The review identified six key cultural domains which influence outcomes. The first is connection to country. This refers to the lands which Indigenous people are bound to through their ancestors and encompasses the emotions, culture and spirituality where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have positive connections. This can be reinforced by collecting, use and using traditional foods and medicines, living on country, establishing land rights and autonomy and caring for country through landman activities and reinforcing social and spiritual relationships. The second is beliefs and knowledge. This includes spiritual traditional knowledge, traditional healing and tra knowledge transmission and continuity. The third is language, which incorporates both continuing language use and revitalization activities and its relationship to health and education. Fourth is family, kinship and community. This can be general or specific. As Noongar man and Aboriginal health expert Ted Wilkes described, the Aboriginal community can be interpreted as geographical, social and political. It places Aboriginal people as part of, but different from, the rest of Australian society. Aboriginal people identify themselves with the idea of being part of a community. It gives us a sense of unity and strength. Fifth is cultural expression and continuity. This incorporates identity and traditional practices such as respect for elders, kinship and family connections, gender and age roles, and ceremony. It also includes art, music, dance, community practices, and sport. And finally, there's self-determination and leadership, which relates to notions of cultural safety and community control, and having control over the directions, over the direction of one's own life and well-being. As I touched on in my introduction, my default research was on the largest epidemiological survey of Indigenous Australian health and well-being to date, called the Maya Kauai study. My research followed the development of this study from its inception in 2014 through to the release of its baseline survey in October 2018. The primary goal of the MK survey was to identify and measure the most important aspects of Indigenous Australian cultures, which may impact on a range of health and well-being outcomes but it also included questions addressing social determinants of health, as well as the impact of colonization, 
including forced removals from traditional homelands, disconnection from culture, social dysfunction, and experiences of racism and discrimination. A unique and crucial feature of the NK study is that it is controlled, owned, and operated by Indigenous Australians. It has employed Indigenous data sovereignty and governance protocols since its inception, meaning that Indigenous perspectives have been embedded throughout the research process, and its data is owned by those who participated in the survey. In practice, this means that every question in the survey serves an Indigenous identified priority, and if anyone wants to use the MK data, they must apply to the study's Indigenous Data Governance Committee for access and demonstrate that they will use the data to advance Indigenous agendas and incorporate, where possible, a strengths-based approach in their work. The focus of my DPhil was on the development of the survey's questions about culture as indicators of Indigenous cultural determinants of health. I looked at how the researchers conceptualise culture within the epidemiological framework and what processes they use to translate culture from a qualitative concept into quantitative measures. I also looked at the wider impact the study could have on the Indigenous health narrative in Australia and internationally through privileging Indigenous knowing, doing and being in the study. I conducted ethnographic fieldwork in 2017 and 2018 when the study's researchers were developing the survey. I interviewed these researchers as well as the professional staff and some of the community research partners involved at the time to understand the different influences which impacted the study's methodology and design. I attended and observed their professional team meetings where the survey and its goals were discussed and refined. And I also attended and observed a number of Indigenous community focus groups organized by the MK researchers in 2017. These sessions were used to find out what elements of culture Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people thought impacted their health and well-being. The focus groups were also used to field test drafts of the survey, which was refined after every session by the researchers following any positive or negative feedback from the participants. The baseline survey released in 2018 consisted of 110 questions, each addressing different aspects of Indigenous health and well-being. They included demographic factors, cultural practice and expression, well-being, health conditions, medications and health behaviours and health service use, experiences and environments, and family support and connection. While all of the questions relating to culture were developed specifically for the MK survey, some of the other questions included in the survey had already been validated for use with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and were included as they were or modified slightly to be more culturally appropriate. For example, the question about the participants' financial situation from earlier drafts of the survey to be more culturally appropriate. In early drafts of the survey, this question asked what participants' income bracket was, as you can see on the top left of this slide. However, during the focus groups, it was found that many people did not want to answer this question as they felt it was too intrusive and reminded them of surveys run by the Australian government. The question thus became modified over time and was eventually reworded as which words best describe your family's money situation, which you can see there at the bottom left of the slide. This was seen to reflect Indigenous identified priorities better as the relationship between income and general well-being is not as strong for Indigenous Australians as it is for non-Indigenous people. The survey questions about culture, also known as cultural indicators, were based on the six key domains identified in the review by Salmon and colleagues, as well as the discussions which arose from Indigenous community focus groups conducted by MK researchers across Australia from 2015 to 2017. They held 28 focus groups with a total of 197 participants in different urban, regional and remote areas of Australia. 
I attended eight of these groups during my fieldwork in 2017 to get an understanding of how cultural determinants of health were discussed and how these conversations influenced changes in the survey questions. The focus groups were not intended to be representative of Indigenous Australian culture. Many of the focus groups included participants whose identity was not tied to the local area and several participants identified with multiple groups or locations. However, they were intended to capture different experiences of culture in urban, regional and remote areas across different age groups and for men and women. Each focus group had between four to 12 participants and the discussion was split into two parts. The first part, an open discussion between the focus group participants and the MK researcher who would begin the discussion with the question, can you tell me about the important things that you think make up Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture here? And that they would then guide the discussion towards how these things influence well-being. The second part involved participants filling out a draft of the survey, and they were asked to provide feedback on what could be improved. After every session, this survey was modified by the researchers in line with this feedback, and the process would begin again for the next session. I conducted a thematic analysis of the discussions which occurred during some of the focus groups for which transcripts or detailed notes were available. And I found that there were six key aspects of culture which the focus groups described as being the most important, including identity, country, language, law and protocols, which include the rules that govern relationships between kin and community members, non-humans of the environment, cultural activities and concepts of well-being. These intrinsic elements were positively associated with physical, mental, and social health by the focus group participants. It was seen as reducing risk-taking behaviors for younger people. When the participants spoke about positive holistic well-being, this was when a balance had been found across these cultural elements. And this existed alongside family well-being and the maintenance of physical, emotional, and spiritual connections to country. According to the focus groups, the balance of these intrinsic cultural elements was heavily influenced by extrinsic elements, which were both structural, like colonization, and socio-behavioral, like health conditions, behaviors, and social dysfunction. When the practice of intrinsic cultural elements was disrupted, feelings of loss, despair, and disconnection were the result. However, the participants also expressed a sense of hope and enthusiasm for cultural revival that was taking place in their communities in various forms. The cultural determinants of health discussed by the focus groups are represented by various cultural indicators in the survey. These cultural indicators will be used in statistical analyses to represent an individual's attachment to or participation in their Indigenous cultures, also known as enculturation. The literature from psychology, public health and education, which is investigated enculturation in the context of Indigenous lived experiences, link greater enculturation to positive health and social outcomes. These studies suggested that enculturation leads to greater resilience for Indigenous peoples, and that this could be reinforced by people actively seeking and engaging in cultural activities. And this echoes exactly what the focus group participants said during their discussions. In my thesis, I focus on the development of one group of questions from the survey in particular, in a section called Cultural Knowledge and Practice. As you can see, this section is divided into two questions, but touches on a range, including being on country, getting or eating foods from the bush, called bush tucker, making art or music, and participation in formally organised Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social events, among others. Under the title of the section, you can see this little blurb here, which tells participants, these are the things that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have said are important to their culture. Not all people do these things, 
and that doesn't make you more or less Aboriginal for a child. Part refers to them as the most important aspects of cultural practice. The second part aims to counter the deficit discourse and feelings of inadequacy people may feel if they don't have traditional knowledge or engage in more traditional cultural activities such as hunting or learning and using law. In the response options too, you can see the influence of a strengths-based approach in the inclusion of the response, one, two, but can't. There are other questions in the survey which may touch on the reasons why people cannot participate in activities at this time. But just capturing this desire to learn more about culture opens the possibility for positive change by providing evidence which community stakeholders can use to develop initiatives addressing these needs at the local level. Unfortunately, given that the MK data is still in the process of being analysed, at this stage, I'm not able to tell you about any of the MK findings about cultural determinants of health at the national level. However, MK has recently published a report detailing the findings of a sub-study they conducted with the data, looking at the health benefits of Asia. Indigenous range of projects employ Indigenous people to undertake land, sea and management activities. Funded by these projects seek to support Indigenous people to combine traditional knowledge with conservation training to protect and manage their land, sea and culture. Ranger employment utilises to facilitate sharing knowledge and stories of sacred sites, learning tracks of aged animals, knowing when plants flower, passing the responsibility to look after sites, fauna and flora between generations. As an example, on the right you can see a photo of a more experienced ranger teaching some younger rangers how to make bush tree. This study found that rangers reported knowing and using their Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander language more than non-rangers, spent more time on country, and had more cultural responsibilities over the country. Being a ranger was significantly associated with very high life satisfaction and family well-being, and this was independent when factors such as income uh, and education were taken into account. There was also a positive but non-significant relationship between being a ranger and general health. Reflecting on these results, in combination with existing literature, the authors concluded that they support the relationship between increased connection to country and cultural practice and positive health and wellbeing outcomes for Indigenous people. I would like to now give you an overview of how cultural determinants of health are discussed in the international literature as an indication of how this concept could be developed in other contexts. Earlier this year, I began an international scoping review to understand how existing health studies in the social science utilize cultural determinants of health concept. I used a number of search engines to identify and publish up to March, which applied and discussed cultural determinants of health in some detail. Out of 204 results I got, I identified 142 articles which discussed cultural determinants of health in some form and added a further 10 articles I was already aware of. From those 152 articles, this graph on the right represents the positive trend over time for articles being published which discuss cultural determinants of health in some form through the use of the phrase cultural determinants of culture as a social determinant or culture as a risk or protective factor. As you can see, this trend has more than doubled since 2015. However, when I began scanning these studies, I found the vast majority did not actually discuss cultural determinants of health in depth, which is what I was interested in knowing about through this review. Often cultural determinants of health would be equated with race or ethnicity, with no further explanation, reflecting a very crude understanding of culture and its variation. So from these articles, this group of articles, I moved most of them uh, after a more detailed scan of their contents, which left me with 38 articles for an in-depth review. Apart from four articles with a global focus, one article looking across the Kansas states, including Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the US, 
and one across various European countries, there was a wide geographical spread. You can see that in most places, there was only one article which focused on cultural terms of health in that country. While in Canada, the States and in Australia, there were several. While I'm still in the process of reading detail, there are a few findings I can present now to demonstrate how cultural terms of health are discussed in the international literature. Culture was broadly defined in three ways. First, in very general terms, such as within European cultural areas, religious affiliation attachment, regionally, as ethnic categories or as social cultural factors. Within this group, most discuss aspects of mentally linked to the social as a social determinant or as a socio-cultural determinant rather than, as, rather than culture as a determinant in its own right. Many articles also discuss culture in a holistic way, either by using indigenous definitions of culture or through more anthropological definitions encompassing beliefs and values which are transmitted from generation to generation. Culture was also discussed by some articles in very specific ways, such as through caring for country or Maori community gardens or the concept of Marianismo, which encompasses traditional Latina gender values. Cultural determinants of health was used as a research framework in whole or in part for most of the articles I reviewed. However, many of these articles use proxy concepts like geographic regions or ethnic categories as a standard for cultural variation. With one exception, the articles which did describe in detail what they identified as cultural determinants of health and why were all about indigenous groups. I also looked at how these articles frame their discussion of cultural factors as having a positive, negative, neutral or mixed impact on health to find out whether the deficit or strengths-based discourse was more prevalent at the international level. I was surprised to find that 42% of the articles frame culture as positive for health. However, it is worth noting that all of these articles focus on the health of Indigenous peoples. 21% of the articles discuss culture in a negative way, with a common link being a focus on health risk and behaviours which increases risk. Almost all these articles define culture by proxy or referred to by what they refer to as socio-cultural determinants like education, employment, knowledge about health risks, etc. 26% of the articles discuss culture in a neutral way and 11% reported both positive and negative aspects. I'm yet to analyse these two groups of articles in depth, so I can't tell you about the connections between them as yet. So to summarise, the major findings of this international scoping review so far are that the cultural determinants of health concept is either ill-defined or not well-defined in the international context, except when the research is conducted with Indigenous peoples, and that these studies almost always discuss the positive relationship between culture and health and well-being. So by now, I hope you have a clearer sense of what social of what cultural determinants of health generally are and how they differ from social determinants of health and their relevance for the Indigenous Australian context in particular. In this presentation, I have given a general overview of how cultural determinants of health were identified and used in the Mayakawai study through the development of cultural indicators. I have also demonstrated that in the international literature, cultural determinants of health has been used as a research framework for a range of studies, but for a large proportion, proxy categories such as geographical region, ethnicity, or generalized socio-cultural factors are used as standings for cultural variation without any further interrogation of how well these categories actually represent this variation. Nevertheless, the majority of articles do describe either holistic or specific cultural terms of health in some detail. And for those that focus on indigenous groups, 
these cultural factors are almost always represented as having a positive impact on health and well-being outcomes. I have already explored how culture is set the Indigenous lived experience of well-being, how cultural determinants of health draws from a strengths-based approach, and how this reflects the strong relationship which has been established between Indigenous health research and rights-based activism. For the last part of my presentation, I would like to give some final thoughts and elaborate a little further on this topic to highlight how cultural determinants of health as a research framework can move academic and policy conversations beyond narratives of inequality and towards decolonizing research and empowering Indigenous peoples in particular to govern their own lives. It was evident in my ethnographic fieldwork that the Mayakawai study researchers were always looking towards the future. This was a future in which Indigenous people are able to understand the role of culture in their lives and communities, and crucially, have the resources to act on this knowledge to improve well-being. The MK study is a primary example of how cultural determinants can be used in large-scale research seeking to apply a strengths-based approach in the study of human health and well-being. The desired shift from social determinants to cultural determinants in the Indigenous health narrative mirrors a wider change across health research and practice away from a focus on risk factors and towards a contextualized understanding of resilience. Using cultural determinants of health as a research framework offers an opportunity for researchers to form a true partnership with community stakeholders and to incorporate local understandings of health and well-being into all aspects of the research work. In Australia, the deficit discourse about Indigenous peoples, which has dominated national conversations for decades, is now slowly being eroded thanks to the efforts of Indigenous-led organisations and their academic partners. Together, they are building evidence which is representative of what Indigenous peoples have always known, that we are strong and resilient, and that supporting connection to culture and identity is the way to improve Indigenous health and social outcomes. Using cultural determinants of health as a research framework means acknowledging that decolonization and Indigenous sovereignty are not just nice ideas, but methods which have the potential to create tangible reconciliation between Indigenous peoples and settler communities. So I'd just like to give a few acknowledgements here uh, to the Roberta Sykes Foundation for funding my DPhil at Oxford, to Ray Lovett and the Maya Kauai study team for allowing me to work with them for my DPhil and financing my fieldwork and to Stanley, of course, supervising my deal. Thank you.